I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're On Pump. Welcome to On Pump, the podcast that takes you on a captivating journey through the who, the what, the why, and the now of perfusion. Mel and I are your hosts, and today we focus on all things patient safety and then some with a very special guest. Please join me in welcoming Mike Colligan, an esteemed professional from ORM Patient Safety Organization. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am a huge fan of kind of the long form discussion, that format that's around in podcasts. When I'm in the car, I either have a podcast on or an audio book, but I love that interactive format that the podcast allows. So I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been we've been courting this for quite a while. There's an entire schematic on how we went about trying to get you onto this podcast (laughs) behind the scenes, but we're really excited because when we started this podcast, the idea that really propelled us was this opportunity to just get to meet these spectacular individuals in the field that have passion projects. That was a big one. We didn't just want success. What we wanted was somebody who was going out of their way to build something novel in the field and how that passion translates into improved patient care for all of us down downstream. So we really appreciate you coming on today and we can't start without singing your praises. I don't know that you know that this is online, but like we found that you are like a nine time all American like athlete from college, <laughs> like you broke records. You held them for years after graduating. Not only did you set a bar, but clearly the bar was so high that it took them a while to even reach it. And the things that people had to say about you were so heartfelt. Like it wasn't just a great compliment. It was just such a meaningful way that people had interactions with you, like pulling across of reviews from you know LinkedIn. People called you dependable, detail-oriented, but then they said things like, Mike left a lasting impression, can count on for virtually anything. If I ever needed surgery, I'd want Mike to be my perfusionist. And that really came across on a different level for, I think, me, because you meet people that are strong at their job, but it's rare to find an individual that leaves such a lasting impact, especially when you meet so many perfusionists at a big medical center for short periods of time. I thank you for the kind words. I can see you scrolled all the way down to (laughs) the very bottom of the LinkedIn profile. The, the social media is a, we present our best faces there. And so I, I've carefully cultivated everything on that profile is true, but that's also the top highlights. All of us in our professional careers have uh, someone who would say that they don't think that you've done a good job. And I do think that I did take a, a lot of time to cultivate that and get different references from different people to make sure that read very well. But I was lucky in my experiences, both in college and after in the perfusion field, that to always have been working with great teams or teams that had really exceptional individuals in them. And that has really helped set my path going forward and get me to where I'm at. And hopefully wherever I go in the future, it will end up being because of the really strong people around me, strong in different ways. So it's been a, just a an amazing ride to interact with so many different kind of people and so many people that are doing so well in different ways. Um, Mike, there's stalkers and there's professional stalkers, and I guess we're the professional kind, but we also might want to edit that out of our video or 
our podcast. <laughs> um, but Mike, we both connected over being former Wildcats. Of course, I have to give a shout out. The University of Arizona has a unique curriculum offering a master's in medical pharmacology, and it's very heavily focused on research. As a former Wildcat, go Wildcats again. Can you share how your experience at the U of A may have shaped your passion for evidence-based research or may have shaped your professional pursuits following your graduation? I often have in the past working with students from different schools, not the U of A, have gotten the question, what was different about the U of A compared to whatever program they were going through? And my personal experience was that the culture at the U of A, at least when I was there, was that we were really encouraged as perfusion students to think of ourselves more as mid-level providers. We were encouraged to think of ourselves as people who could read and interpret an EKG and offer suggestions for treatment based on that. We were taught to look at a balloon pump in the waveform and offer suggestions for optimization or drugs that the patient might be taking, same thing. There are a lot of schools out there, I think, that try to narrow the scope of their students, maybe sometimes for the benefit so that they don't get overwhelmed. But I think that your license can allow you to do a lot of things. And if you are trained, you should include that in your scope. But not everybody is trained in every area. So I think that the cultural differences were really the biggest ones out there. And it was also eye-opening. I had never been involved in real bench research. And I don't know what your experience was, but when I was there working with Doug and some of the other true PhDs that are doing cell line cultures, exposing different cell lines to different physiologic parameters, that really opened my eyes. In some, in some ways, I felt like I was too much seeing the sausage made and didn't want to learn anymore. But yeah. it, it was eye-opening in so many ways, beneficial, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I, I agree. Looking back, it's as a perfusion student, it's how do I balance being in the operating room and then also at the research bench? I know Doug Larson was my program director as well. And you're right, though. It was very eye-opening. I'm very grateful for being put in those positions because it makes me think a little bit differently. So Ray Wong, who's now the program director, are you listening, <laughs> Ray Wong? I'm sure he is. <laughs> because I say that because he recently invited you back to the old stomping grounds of the Sarver Heart Center at the OVA to discuss your leadership ex excellence and to teach the students about leadership aspects of the field. Can you review a few of those discussion points or words of advice? Yes, I can. I was very honored to go back there. And uh, Jennifer Baez, who's formerly area regional director on the West Coast, and then I think is working there in the Tucson areas as a staff member, but still has a wide breadth and depth of experience and leadership. Uh, both of us, and there was another gentleman, and I'm sorry, I don't have his name in front of you, but that was more of a Q&A session. And we talked to the students a few things. Some of the topics that came up were how to make a good first impression in your first job. They did, there were questions about transparency with salary and, and how the market for perfusionists has really been very dynamic recently. So there were questions about that, a little bit of light questions about interviewing. So those were the things that were out there. And I think Ray really tried to drive the discussions towards helping the students once they got out to make the good impressions and understand what success is going to look like 
outside of the school and outside of training. And I'll add also, I really, I thank Ray and I need to thank him again. He suggested that I just, instead of doing that meeting via Zoom, come out there and visit. And I'll tell you what, Tucson in May for people who have not been there, it is awesome. The weather is nice in the mornings, nice at night, little hot in the day. But the entire desert, if you get out of the city, every different exotic plant out there is blooming. And it's just amazing. And if you, if anyone hasn't been there to visit at that time, you should definitely go. I second that. I'm a big Arizona fan. <laughs> yeah, I was astounded. The first time I ever got to go was for AMSEC last year to Arizona. And I don't know, I was like a dog with like my face up against the window the whole time to the airport, just like staring the colors of the sky were spectacular and I don't know the whole place was just fantastic I did not like Arizona when I was there training because we were always either on call for school or I took part in the organ harvest team Tiffany I don't know if you you did that or maybe the artificial heart department but yeah. I was on call almost 100% of the time after my first six months there and couldn't go out to do any hikes couldn't do a lot of the great things that are available in that area weren't necessarily available at that time, but man, is it a nice place to be for sure. Yeah, I do agree with that. I was on the transplant team as well. It was a lot of call. It was hard to enjoy Arizona to its fullest, but I have to say the sunsets in Arizona, I'm pretty biased. They're the best. Yeah. That's really interesting that you bring that up, like taking call as a student. That's not something that we did. I think we did that at MUSC for a week and it was just to get a taste of what that felt like but we didn't have to do it all the time it was more stuck in the didactic realm for that whole first year so i think that's also like a testament to that program in arizona that students are learning the didactic material but then also taking on what can be pretty stressful call isn't always a walk in the park so that's very impressive to be able to manage that at the same time yeah and I don't know about both of you ladies, but I, when I entered perfusion school, I did not have any clinical background. And that's a very, it's very stressful the first, at least for sure, the first six months to be in an environment where you really, you could do some small thing that you have no idea about that is just, uh, could get you into trouble, not necessarily with your preceptor, but take you down a hallway and you can't find your way back or your badge and I might not work here. Or you oh, can't find a bathroom. Those things are all, <laughs> they seem trivial, but they hurt you day to day when you're doing it forever for a long time and you're brand new to it. So I'm sure both of you have had experiences like that. I've gotten yeah. locked in a stairwell here or there and yeah. had to pray for somebody to come by on the back stairwell to let me onto a certain floor. That uh, sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say like in my first experience as a student, I did not have any clinical background as well. And I just remember one day just zooming into the, the OR <laughs> and then everyone was like, it's me. Everyone is like, be careful. Don't touch the blue. I'm like, oh, okay. So that was my experience. But then now being in a new role, like in a hiring leader role, I do look at those resumes and I look for someone who might've, you know, had a little bit more experience in in that clinical setting, because it, it makes a big difference. Yeah, that's for sure. I think there's definitely some pretty massive learning curves that come along with entering the field of perfusion that might be a little bit specific to our market and not so much a different sector. 
But it seems like there's also a thread there that's super important to touch on. And it's that when you look at those people with lack of experience, but they have that thread of excellence that permeates through their resume in everything that they've done prior to Perfusion, I think you can pretty much bank on the fact that they're going to be successful individuals in Perfusion. I think it's more of a mindset. Those types of individuals, they strive for perfection and continuous improvement. Rather is a better way to say that. They're the kind of people, Mike, I hate to call you out again, but I watched one of the presentations and something just stuck with me when you said, you have to go back after everything you do and think, how can I done? How could I have done this a little bit better? What could I have improved on? What went wrong? Or maybe it didn't go wrong, but you have a better way of doing it in the future. And to me, that, that really triggered my thought and I was like, yes, that is a culture of excellence because the minute you take your foot off the gas and you just get something done and you move on is a huge missed opportunity. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, how you've built a reproducible system in your life in general that has helped you excel. What are some of those things you do in the background that people don't see? I think that there's probably, it's probably two mindsets that I would think about. And I think one of them, I was just talking, we have a relatively new hire where I work at clinically and that perfusionist is pretty young and came out right towards the second half of the COVID wave, came out of school. So spent almost their first year exclusively watching COVID ECMO. And I was telling them, I said, you're getting great experience now that, and we're working together and I see you doing great cases. And I said, make sure that you are really diligent about thinking about these things after they happen, whatever it is, whether you pumped a normal case and the surgeon said it was great, or at the end of the case, you wish you would have rewarmed a little bit earlier. But I was shocked right when I hit somewhere in the five to 10 years of experience range that I, at that point, I started working with a much larger group of perfusionists who had anywhere from less than a year to probably more than 20 or 30 years experience. And some, and there was almost no correlation to the number of years of experience they had and how there definitely was a correlation between their experience and how comfortable they were in the OR, but the mastery of perfusion as an art and a craft, I think did not necessarily correlate to their years of experience. And So I was thinking about that and I told this younger perfusionist, I have seen people who I got the impression that somebody had 20 years of experience and I've seen people then I got the impression that they had one year of experience 20 times and they just essentially repeated the same year over and over again. And I'm sure I've stolen that idea from someone and I'm not sure who that is to credit them, but it's that's definitely been my experience. And I would say the other kind of thing is that I'm very much on kind of the Cal Newport style. I don't know if either of you have read any of his books or listened to his podcast, but he talks about what he calls slow productivity, taking down a mountain one spoonful at a time. And I I think that's really a very applicable approach to getting something done, especially something big you have to take small bites of. I'll have to look into that podcast. Sounds very interesting. I'm not a podcast person, which... We'll probably it's edit strange, that out. Isn't it? <laughs> That'll probably have to get edited out, right? Like I'm not a podcast person, but <laughs> hypocrite, hypocrite. How did you get 
can you refresh for me how you got into this? I don't <laughs> oh, God. I fangirled so hard when I met Tiffany at AmPsych last year. She did a fantastic presentation. And I just plopped down and sat next to her okay. during a session. And she watched mine and, you know, she had a similar feeling, <laughs> which was crazy. I found out that she was with the ICBP and I was really interested in finding out what's the process for getting on that committee. Are there years of experience that you have to have? What goes on? And she looked at me and said, you just have to have a really great idea for how you can help perfusion. That's going to speak a lot. I created an idea. I sent it to her. She forwarded it to the ICBP and they interviewed me. And they asked me in the interview, point blank, what do you think you can bring to the table? And I'm not going to sit there and tell a group of people that I've authored how many freaking papers like, oh yeah, like I can author that. Um, mm -hmm. So I looked at them and I said, you have the evidence-based information part down, but you have a deficiency in disseminating that information. And I think that I can help with that. I think a podcast would be a fantastic way to disseminate projects that the ICBP is doing to disseminate novel ideas and perfusion. And they called me on it. They said, okay, join us and start the podcast. <laughs> Go ahead, Tiffany. No, oh, I'll no. ask the question later. I agree with the second half of Mel's ex explanation. But the first half, I have to say it was me who sat next to her and fangirled her because she had an excellent presentation. And I was just really impressed with how well she spoke and how well she knows her research. It's still the same feeling. And then some, I'm really proud of Mel. I think she's awesome. And yeah, I originally thought I would do some kind of YouTube thing. I get a little shy in front of the camera. So that just wasn't going to work for me. So Mel and I just spitballed off of each other and made it all happen. So here we are. <laughs> Tiffany makes it happen. She edits everything. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, you know, a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, I can do a podcast. Click here, click there, upload, you're all good. I pro I'm certain it's hours and hours of work that is, are unseen, at least. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but we have so much fun. I think the best thing about this is that we get to learn so much. There's so much opportunity to grow in our own fields and grow from just networking and learning from other people. So that's, I think, the highlight of what we both enjoy. Um, it keeps us on our toes. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have to say for me, just getting the opportunity to talk to people that big in the field, I feel like sometimes there's a little bit of a barrier when you get started because you're, you're starting at the bottom, which is not a bad thing, right? Like you, you have a lot to learn, but because you have a lot to learn, you have a lot of foundational concepts that you have to get a handle on, whether that's clinically or in terms of an organization or in terms of doing a bigger project that sometimes it's hard to access people all the way at the top that are just sprinting. They're at the top and they're still running. And this podcast for me was just a great way to just jump over that whole hurdle and be like, you know what? I just really want to talk to you and I want to learn from you. And it's interesting because we're talking about that and it talks about mentorship and leadership. And you were actually an adjunct program developer for the leadership symposium at AMSECT, which is something I'm, I haven't done yet, but I am highly interested in, but I don't know very much about. And there's not very much about it online besides the application portal. Yeah, I would say I helped out a very, I was very adjunct in that. And that was really Kenny Shan's brainchild. And he deserves a lot of credit, all the credit, really. That entire initiative was probably close to just drifting off into the sunset with no actionable information. And he, ra he really rallied everyone around that. I remember he called me and he's, we haven't, and at that, he called me and at that time, I don't think, I had been 
an AMSEC member, but very lightly involved. And, and he said, we need to get people on these calls. And he just did an amazing job of getting that whole thing started. That was a huge lift, 99 point something percent, but I'm probably missing someone. But from my perspective, Kenny just lifted that thing up by sheer willpower. And once it got going the first year, it got good reviews. The second year, it got really great reviews. And after that, it was off to the races. I don't know. I'm not involved with it right now. And I don't know exactly how it works. But it sounds like there's almost an ongoing light mentorship, you know, connection with a more senior person. And from what I've heard from the people who have done it on the leaderships being the mentors, they have really enjoyed it as well. So it sounds like it's been a a great success. That's awesome. Now, (laughs) so in the past, I've actually been wanting to join that symposium and just the timing didn't work out or I forgot the timeframe of it. But now I'm a leader. So now I'm like, like, oh, I wish I had done that leadership symposium, especially as I pull out my hair at current. But no, it's also leadership is fun. I don't know, Tiff. You might get asked, but you might join that leadership symposium in a different way than you expected. In a different way. Yeah, Yeah. you you might be the mentor, not the mentee this time. Oh, man, I don't know. Um, I'm still learning a lot. I always will be. But uh, so as we continue to trace the upwards trajectory of your life, what was the turning point or your motivation to pursue your doctorate in health at healthcare administration? And how did you balance your pursuit of a doctorate? And how has that helped you in your current role? So I decided I was at an academic medical center looking up towards more administrative roles. That kind of pushed me to pursue that doctorate. I also, unfortunately for me, I think sometimes I don't always, sometimes it's difficult to, you think about like Steve Jobs, like he hoisted the rebel flag at his headquarters as they were developing the phone, but Sometimes it's tough to be a rebel. I've been disappointed at times with healthcare administration and thought if that getting that doctorate would give you the give me the information to help really right some of the wrongs I had seen or help to carry the story or carry the cause of the clinicians and the people who are really trying to hard to make things work well day to day. That's definitely been the whole process was obviously very eye-opening and I learned a lot from it, both from pursuing the doctorate and then starting to work in with administrations at different hospitals. I hope I don't surprise anyone by saying, I think that we have a lot of opportunity for improvement in how the entire healthcare system works. And I I don't know anyone who works in healthcare who would say something different that they think like it's really working well. I think that for anyone out there who has either ideas or the desire to get additional training to do leadership well or to, and that's individual as well as leading organizations. There is plenty of work. Don't worry about that. If you want to do that, I would encourage anyone to do it, everyone to do it really. Yeah, that's incredible. It's always interesting trying to relay information to people who are so far removed from clinical care, but also far removed from your department, high up in a big center and you put yourself in their shoes and you're like, okay, I guess I see it. You get this one-off person coming in there. Pre- how do you present something that's going wrong and adequately express verbally that it needs to be changed? It, that's a lot of pressure on one individual to have a really strong 
linguistics, I don't know, linguistics and, and verbiage. I don't know how you describe that, but that sense of how to actually verbalize things to the right groups of people's, I don't know, yeah. big skill. Well, I would say that there are so many situations where people in administrative roles in hospitals have such a wide and deep area of responsibility that you could walk in anything short of you walking in and saying that the building's on fire is almost below their the level of them rising to their attention and i say that not trying to denigrate any one individual i think that it's unfortunate that there's so much that has to be done in healthcare facilities nowadays and that it requires such a deep level of attention that there's so many situations where people can't look at the forest because of the trees. So anyways, I don't have a magic answer for that, but it's very difficult on a day-to-day. I'm sure both of you have experienced that. It's kind of like alarm fatigue for healthcare administrators. <laughs> it is actually exactly <laughs> like that. What an applicable analogy. That's amazing. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that one's that one. You're gonna hear at multiple conferences this coming year. Okay, right? here we go. <laughs> Tiffany's writing a new, doing a new presentation right now. Oh no! Management I've... and alarm fatigue. The yeah. same clinical scenario. Oh, there you go. I guess I gotta That's go good. get my doctorate in healthcare administration. No, you came up so with I that. I just gave it the title. <laughs> I was just thinking from the healthcare clinical perspective. I was just trying to relate, but you know, it works. <laughs> Okay, to segue into the non-routine events because you're you've you're such a big advocate for patient safety in cardiac surgery and perfusion, which is tremendous because we need mavericks like that who have the courage to come out and say things like that. You underscored in a roundtable discussion on CTSNet that systems thinking and the development of mental models in young prof- professionals or perfusionists is vital in shaping their ability to respond to non-routine events. Were there, can you speak to that? Were there specific challenges you faced early on that helped to build that framework for you? Like, how did you start noticing certain things that you came to that conclusion? Uh, There was a book that I read that kind of set the stage for that. And I would have a hard time going back and referencing that book, what that book was. But somewhere there was a study. And in that study, they included firefighters. They included ICU nurses, people with a lot of specialized experience. And they would shadow them, essentially, and find situations where they had identified something before it became well-known. For example, they ident- a nurse identified a patient that was heading towards sepsis before there were true clinical signs that, that someone would come by and diagnose and say, this patient is now in sepsis. And so when they studied those people, they found that over time, and I'm probably butchering this study, but generally speaking, to paraphrase, over time, those people developed a global picture of what a normal patient was supposed to look like, and then started developing chunks of information like, this doesn't fit into the normal picture. And if you see this one chunk that doesn't fit, even though that chunk doesn't say sepsis, if that chunk sits over there and then something else strange happens, maybe you start thinking about sepsis. And I would see that, I would see that specifically, I was at one center, it was a big academic center, and we would run and do ECMOs in the hallways and in distant parts of the hospital that didn't 
have the right elevators to transport the ECMO patients. That's really when I started to think about that. Like, how can we think more globally, really, from the second the phone rings for an ECMO response all the way to the time that we put the patient back in an ICU bed on ECMO successfully? And what do people, what images do people need to have in their heads about how that goes properly? How can that help us? With that said, Mike, I think we're getting into the meat of our conversation here. Can you define exactly for our listeners what a patient safety organization is and its mission and impact that it serves for the perfusion community? Absolutely. I will say I need to say that I'm not offering legal advice here. So (laughs) everything I say is probably based just on my understanding. I have studied patient safety organizations, but I am not an attorney. Patient safety organizations were created by the Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Act of 2005, and they were were created specifically to allow healthcare providers and healthcare organizations to look very rigorously and very frankly at their data to understand what went right and specifically what went wrong and where things were suboptimal so that they can produce better healthcare in the future. And everything they look at, all the analysis they undertake, all those and the conclusions they reach, that's all considered privileged and confidential, what's called patient safety work products. So that means that even if that information were to accidentally be sent to a plaintiff's attorney, that it couldn't be admitted in court, the privilege remains attached to it, even if the confidentiality is accidentally broken. I don't know if either of you saw the keynote speaker at AMSECT, but he was actually helped to create the uh, PSQIA, Safety and Quality Improvement Act. He helped put some of that language in there. And he reflected to me afterwards, I tracked him down after his talk, and he was a little bit disappointed because a lot of PSOs essentially function only to hide information. They'll take information about events and they essentially put it in this lockbox which is legal, but the purpose is that that is going to undergo some kind of analysis so that later you can have a better understanding. And I would guesstimate, it's just a shot in the dark here, that probably 90 to 95% of all PSO activity in the U.S. is basically taking this information, putting it away so that no one can ever see it, um, which is not really the true purpose. And I was actually a little bit surprised to see him say that, but I think it's probably true. But we focus in a totally different way. So at Orem, we take that information, we put it through an analysis, and we try to disseminate it in a non-identified way as broadly as possible while still maintaining the PS patient safety work product designation on it so that people don't have to be worried about that receiving that information. They can get that information if they don't have time to act on it or they've ordered some piece of equipment they need, but it's not here yet. They don't have to worry if something's going to go wrong. And then this someone can come back to them and say, you knew about this issue and you didn't address it. The content that we deliver when we deliver it to people who are PSO members is confidential and privileged. It's a little bit different than the information we put out there publicly, but it's really that I'm happy that those legal protections are out there because it really breaks down all the barriers to being concerned about improvement. That's awesome. That's so important. And if I could backtrack back to that keynote speaker at AMSECT, it's to my remembrance that he mentioned aviation. And I do feel that a lot of perfusionists have a strange infatuation with aviation. 
So in your publications on the RMPSO, I often see a comparison made to aviation. Can you educate us in regards to how aviation and the PSO may be linked? We do sit in our own little cockpit behind the pump, and I'm just waiting for the breakthrough in technology that allows heart-lung machines to fly. <laughs> That'll be the I day like I retire. Hover. It doesn't have to fly so much, yeah. but it just be. But just hover a little bit, like the Back to the Future skateboard. I thought about that. Yeah, like the hovercraft. Yeah, that documentary is out. Oh my God, I'm blinking. On Netflix? Yes, thank you. The, called Still. Sorry. And what is Off that? Track. Still? I don't it know that. that. What is that? It's the documentary on Michael J. Fox. I was just thinking oh, that. Oh, yes, I heard about that. You're, you're not inside my brain as it's firing. I'm sorry. I forgot that. <laughs> I think the analogies are very, I think people make those analogies all the time just because they're so applicable. And I use it when I talk to patients' families. And I think that, number one, the role that we undertake is very similar. Time constraints, our interaction with equipment, the ability to have a catastrophic consequence, the, a lot of the ideas are similar, mode confusion, and so I, I think that there's just so many parallels, it's hard not to make that, draw that analogy or draw that contrast there. There's other contra- other analogies that could be made, but I think that's probably the closest one. I think personally, and the other thing is that aviation's done such an amazing job. There are probably tens or hundreds of millions of flights every year. And in recent years, there's been several years where not a single person died. In, in air transport in the U.S. That's a more than a Six Sigma level of perfection there. It's way, way down, way out on the bell curve. So it, they've done an amazing job. I like to think of us more or maybe as military pilots because air traffic, commercial air traffic, they can be grounded if the weather's not good. If it's not good conditions, if the plane's not properly prepared, they don't have to fly. They can sit. But that is not always the case for us. So there are times when we have to go and do something in a suboptimal environment. We have to put that patient on ECMO in an elevator, right? Or we have to crash emergently on bypass through no fault of anyone involved in the care of that patient. So there are times when our hand is forced. And so I think the kind of the military aviation is a more applicable, um, you know, Hopefully your surgeon is not the one shooting anti-aircraft at you. I hope not. But but it could be. Some people feel like they experience that. Yeah, sometimes mentally. I don't know. (laughs) No, actually, I just have to read something I have highlighted. It's from your um, ORM safety report. It says, in 1975, the Federal Aviation Administration additionally developed an anonymous incident reporting system to widely disseminate safety information in the aviation industry. So... They were definitely well ahead of their time, it sounds like, and they are definitely a reputable uh, source to follow. Yeah, no, we followed closely that example, and I think it's a good analogy to draw between that and our reporting system. The The purposes are the same, the ability to collect widely disseminated information that's in the hands of the frontline personnel is, that's the whole goal. And I think that's what their system does, and we hope that's what our system does as well. Awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting that you talked about us being a little bit closer to the military aviation, because one of my favorite analogies with aviation is the story of Abraham Wald. Are you familiar with him at all? I don't think I am. I think Dave introduced me to this concept. He talked about this mathematician 
who is one of the smartest people. So you have uh, Milton Friedman is one of the most prominent economists who got the Nobel Prize. He is considered, um, we're going to have to delete this, but he's considered a slightly less intelligent than this Abraham Wald. And okay. back in World War II, him, Milton Friedman, Abraham Wald, and all these mathematicians and economists were brought together by Columbia University to study how we could be more effective during World War II. And one of the things they were tasked with was making the fighter planes more efficient. At that time, a lot of these planes weren't even coming back. So you only had access to the planes that successfully went on an op and made it back. And they were studying it. And there were two areas of those planes that used to get hit with bullets frequently. And it was the fuselage or the engine carriage or cage. And all of the planes that came back had no bullets near the engine. So they were saying like, oh, let's put all of the armor on the fuselage because that's where all the bullets are. And Abraham Wald was the only mathematician who had this penchant for, what was it? Like a, it was like a specific part of mathematics that didn't, it was more conceptual than, than actual equations. And he was the only one that looked at that issue and thought, oh my God, like, why would you do that? We should put armor where the bullet holes are not because these are the planes that made it. So where are the missing bullet holes? They're with the missing planes. And yeah. that's when they went on to discover that that's why you have Kevlar that covers your chest and not your legs and why the majority of patients in a hospital have bullet holes in their legs and not in their chest. It's not because people aren't getting hit in their chest. It's because they're not making it. So yeah. I would love to hear your thoughts. Like where that are the was... missing bullet holes for perfusion here? <laughs> I that's an amazing question. I have not thought about that yet. Now that you tell that story, we actually studied that case the very first semester of my doctorate at University of Mississippi Medical Center. And it was an example of survivorship bias. So they were only studying the planes that made it back. And so it's exactly as you said, they were doing the exact opposite thing to help increase plane survivability because they weren't studying their failures with the failures being the planes that were shot down. When I saw that, it was, I had never considered that concept before. It was like a giant light bulb went off. Of it. And you think about it afterwards, and it's like, it, to be honest, it's many of the things that we look at in, in these incident reports that come in. It's not, usually it's not rocket science. Or if it's a, if it's a problem or a, a mistake that was made, it's a small mistake. It's not something catastrophic that's going on and just the dramatically disproportionate impact that it can have those some of those small decisions and also not looking at the right decisions and not looking at them in the right context. I'm glad to hear that Dave uses that and I, it is a very powerful example and really can change your way of thinking when you start looking at things from that perspective. Yeah, for sure. That's a hard question to follow, Mel. It's really good. I <laughs> know. I love that. Spent all day on it. It's okay. <laughs> Forward thinking per usual. So Mike, ORMPSO is the first perfusion-centric resource. It's unique in many ways, including its offering of event analysis and quarterly reports that help disseminate information to our industry about the most frequent types of non-routine events and the top recommendations, as well as gaps in resources based on the reports received. So in a short Perfusion Hack publication that you authored on Perfusion.com, it stood out that years before Orem, you had already identified a resource gap in our profession about the rate and modality to disseminate critical information. 
So this idea has been on your mind long before a formal company was actually established. Is that still an aspect that translates to Orem? That's a hard question to answer. What what was that publication called? You, I didn't think for <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. It that, was, it was your hack on up. a SARNS eight thousand level detector used as a clamp holster. <laughs> oh, I think the idea was actually stolen. That was Brian White He's at Emory now. I think or about to go to Emory as or he not Emory. He's in Atlanta, but I don't remember where at. But anyways, students are ingenious. And I think that was probably, I think it was his. In fact, he claimed it after I posted that. He said, that was me that did that. I just want you to know. I I think the idea for a national registry and dissemination of information really started to come around in, um, I was at a large academic medical center and went transitioned from being staff into being what they called, what the chief role was. And all of a sudden, these near misses or events that were happening were landed on my desk, and it was my responsibility to do something about it. And I couldn't believe that whatever issues were popping up, A, B, C, D, that we were 50 years into our profession and it had not been already identified or answered, or somebody hadn't made a list of all these issues and that they could come back up. So that's when the idea first started to percolate that we as a profession, we must be further along than this. Look at how far aviation is, right? But in fact, we weren't. And I think that we're still, it's a human endeavor and we've got, a, but we have a long way to go. And sometimes I look at it and think we're, we have further than I think we have at any given time. But yes, Im- impressive for you to pull up that reference. I don't even know how I would find that now. I think um, your name. Mel found that. I, I had Google alerts, but that never came up. <laughs> Uh, Mel found that and then I think I read it and then I drove home and then in my head the entire drive home I was just trying to think of all the fun little hacks that throughout my perfusion career that <laughs> it kind of it got me thinking it was good. I thought it was great I'm not sure why that didn't explode my we still can't purchase SARNS 8000 level detectors <laughs> but but Orem was rigorously designed to meet the needs of perfusionists. It was created to be perfusion-centric specifically, and it was made in a way to protect clinicians across the USA specifically also, because there was some sort of an issue that you touched on prior about PSOs being international and certain levels of security across the board. So I love that you guys contracted a larger established PSO to be a consultant during development and, you know, how you guys chose origami risk. And that's all in that paper that you authored. So if somebody wanted to go in and dive a little deeper into that, it is on there. But for those that, you know, are listening on the podcast, can you elaborate more on the measures surrounding the incident report? Like, how is it made to be confidential? How does it remove discoverability? What are the layers of security within the PSO as to which employees can access a level of information? Let's just remove some of those fears somebody might have when they're not familiar with the PSO and what happens to that data if they decide to listen to this podcast and go and submit a report. Yeah, there's very, there's several levels and I'll try to be brief because I don't want to bore everyone. First of all, I would say that I was actually, we were just talking to a large academic system today on a call. The information that is usually beneficial to us 
in the work that we do. And I would really say we're more cardiac surgery and ECMO centric. That work very rarely requires a patient name, patient medical record number. Really, to tell you the truth, it doesn't even need to have a facility attached to it because that information is usually redundant. That information does not help us to understand most of the time what happened. So to start with, the information that's collected is usually very difficult to link to a provider. And probably half the reports that we receive are totally anonymous. People don't leave any contact information or anything. With regards to IT security, we do use origami risk. It is very expensive. I won't say it's in today's world. I think we're all understanding that there was just a news article, I think last week, you know, this worldwide company that had more than 100,000 employees got hacked. They've got to have amazing levels of security, right? If somebody has a nation state type resources, I suspect that they can get through anything, whether it's our system or any system out there, right? But to the point that you're taking all the prudent precautions that are out there, origami risk has three major certifications of security that they've attained. And that's those are all the ones that are required to operate both in the US and the EU to my level of understanding. So number one, we don't really collect much or any identifiable sensitive information. Number two, we use soft the software platform that's as secure as anything that's available, at least to my level of understanding. And then finally, there's both legal uh, and administrative controls. We have technical controls. Every employee who accesses each, we can see every click that an employee makes when they're in the system. Um, we, they get training on the confidential and privileged nature of the work that we're doing. They sign a confidentiality agreement. They understand that there's legal penalties. And those penalties, we don't sue someone if they violate the Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Act. We report it to the Office of Civil Rights, and they pursue that person. Again, it's an 11, I think it's an $11,000 fine per, per incident. So there's a lot of layers in there. And I don't want to belabor the point. I think that the biggest, to me, the biggest advocate for this cause and the concerns about confidentiality and security are when people start reading the reports, the quarterly reports that we send out to our members. These are summaries and they're de-identified. So you still get the scenario, you were in the OR, it was a cab times two and XYZ happened. But that could be anywhere in the US. It could be any perfusionist. And, and we usually scrub it a little bit more to put a little something artificial in there so it doesn't, it for certainly doesn't link to anybody in particular. But when they read those reports and there's a lot of them. Usually we're putting out 10 to 20 summaries every quarter. And so they just read report after report and they say, oh, everybody else is doing this. Look at all these reports that have be are being received. So I had this event and I know it can help someone else and I'm going to put it in. Or I have this event and it, I thought it was X, but maybe now that I'm reading this, it's Y. Let me put it in and see if I get any new thoughts or information information about that. So I think that the risks the, the risks are probably non-zero, but I think that once people start seeing the information that's coming out, they get a lot more relaxed about putting information in. So Mike, um, to further segue, how do you think that fear of discovery has shaped the need for anonymous reporting and how has that fear halted progress until now? I think the fear of dis discovery is real. I think I just got an email from
from that yesterday or two days ago, uh, UPenn had something like $153 million settlement due to birth, birth-related injury in a pediatric patient. And those tail risks, or I mean, those settlements can go into infinite, almost infinite dollar amounts, catastrophic, really. And so those fears have always been anchored maybe at those giant numbers that people see from time to time. And it's not, those are real things that really happen. But I'm really happy that we were able to develop a system where somebody can come in, put a report in and use a Google phone number or an email address that they have just recently created to to put this report in and still get information, number one, out to the rest of the profession. And number two, if, if they need analysis, they can get it back to themselves. They can also just put it in a totally anonymous fashion to get that information out without feeling like they need an analysis back. I actually want to jump out of order because from your last question, I feel like this kind of goes into it pretty well. And to give people an idea that each and every incident that is reported receives a comprehensive analysis report of the event back to that individual free of charge. And that return report includes best practice recommendations or checklist modifications, potential safety alerts. And for a center with a physician-led peer review process in place, or for a cardiac surgical group who has a multidisciplinary M&M meeting or grand rounds, how could you know a clinician who goes through a non-routine event who maybe puts in a report, you guys put them back out, what is it, 72 hours later, you have a very fast turnaround, which is very impressive for today. Yeah, I, I'm not going to hold no. that. I, I that might, might be change. our goal. We're definitely not at that level yet, okay. especially with the difficult reports, but I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go no, ahead. that's fine. But basically, like, how could maybe utilizing ORMPSO submitting that report and maybe if it comes back in time, how could that bolster the presentation or the review and the actionable future steps for that department during that M&M meeting when they're talking about that event? Yeah, I'll tell you this. I think that when we do, and I was actually just talking to Theron about this, who's kind of our database administrator. Maybe you ladies know him. He's been very active in the past with AMSEC. We tend to... There's a variety of ways that I think that that could have an impact. Number one is that with so many reports received and such a broad reporting facilities, we get to see differences in techniques that just might not be, a, you know, it might not be something that ever dawned on someone. We have had multiple reports that involved issues in or around the aorta where it needed to be de-aired. And if you've never done it before, and especially if you've never done it under stress or you haven't done it recently, it can be very difficult. And there's probably multiple ways to do it. We looked at several different ways to do it. We said, this is this way is probably the easiest way. It's simple. It's fast. X, Y, Z. And so that's the way that we recommend it. Now, some people probably already do it that way. Some people maybe have another way that they do it that is that they practice a lot or that they already know in their mind that's their plan. But this might be something that would be helpful for someone who's not in that position or a team is not in that position. Another thing is that I think we, when we, people submit reports on the reporting form, it says, what actions did you take or do you plan to take to prevent this event again? And so oftentimes we look at 
reports that come in and it will say something like, we're going to do a, even though this event or this item is already on their checklist, where it got somehow got missed or their checklist wasn't detailed enough to prevent this event from occurring. So they say something like, we're going to be extra diligent about doing our checklist. And that's a good idea. But usually we have some tools that came from AHRQ that are in our analysis platform that drive us to make suggestions that are more engineering solutions. So we generally won't say, once X has happened, do Y. Uh, unless X is totally unpredictable. What we'll usually say is to prevent X from happening, go back and add Y to your checklist or put Z physical barrier in place or do F something else, do things in this order and prevent that from happening. So we really focus more on preventing the events. And uh, I feel like I just blabbered on there and I'm not sure, I can't remember what your original question was. No, that was perfect. I think that was a, I like that you went into a specific example to give people an idea of how that report could be leveraged in a multidisciplinary meeting where they need to review it. This is a podcast featuring you, so you can talk as much as you want. As much as my voice will let. That's what we, yeah, I know. That's what we want. We want you to talk. We're going to be the reason he doesn't want to come back on. He's going to be like, you know what? I already did it. It's all right. You guys can just find someone else next time. Let me refer you to someone. I know someone <laughs> yeah, really yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We like the talkers. So in my mind, these reports could drastically assist in the development of national standards and guidelines. And I even quote from the PSO white paper, such a system would affect the culture of perfusion in a shift from case-based retrospective reporting to trend-based prospective reporting. Can you walk us through how someone may go about entering an anonymous report and what happens after a report is entered and how does this information then serve the perfusion community? So a lot of questions there. Someone, how do they submit a report? The easy way to answer that is they can go to perfusionsafety.com and submit a report from there. Once a report comes in, then it comes to me first. I take a quick look at it and I send it to one of our analysts. The analyst reviews it, makes sure they don't have any conflict and feels comfortable that they can undertake it. And then they get to work on it. We have, we have a light algorithm that prompts them on how to undertake that analysis. I will be honest, some of it right now has got instinct and having looked at other events in the past. And then once they finish the analysis, they send it back to me. I look at it. Sometimes, oftentimes, we have to have a discussion about, is this really the best solution? Or maybe I have another idea. And they're like, oh, but your idea is not going to fix the problem. And I say, oh, yeah, you're right. X, Y, Z won't work that way. So we definitely have discussions about it. And then once that's completed and the we tag the analysis as complete, and if there's contact information that the provider left, we send a copy of that. It's actually sent securely. So they have to log back into the system. They create a login. Again, it's anonymous if they want it to be to come back and read the report. So it doesn't technically, they could cut and paste, but it doesn't leave our possession so that it's not dangling out there somewhere in the wind. I felt like there was another part to your question that I missed there at the end. There were a lot of parts to my question. So how do you feel this serves best serves the perfusion community? Yeah. So I think right now it serves in a couple of different ways. I think those 
the individual reports are helpful at the local level, but I wish we had, I, I wish we could just make the system free and not have to have facilities sign up. The law requires us to have an agreement with a facility to have them get full access to all the information. We get around that. If I could just snap my fingers, I'd make the membership a dollar and then just everybody would go and become members and it would work well that way. We try to disseminate as much information as we can through the individual reports, because when we send those out, if there's knowledge that has been gained from 15 other reports of a similar type, we will reference that knowledge in the individual event report. So the individual event report analysis that goes out will have embedded knowledge from all the other reports, but only the other applicable reports. And then we also, our members obviously get a huge amount of information and that's continuing to grow. And then every year our affiliation with AMSEC requires and actually allows us, gives us the honor of producing a report for them. And we put uh, descriptive statistics in there about the reports and the types of information we're getting very generally. But we also produce kind of a safety theme for the year. And this year, when we looked at the reports that we've received during the previous calendar year, we noted something that we call alarm confusion. And sometimes I've almost evolved into calling it mode confusion. But I think it's really best to focus on calling it alarm confusion for the AMSEC report because we really noticed a lot of that in the reports in the past year and, and very reports that became very, that were very eye-opening or shocking, those often involved alarm confusion. And it's such a simple thing and actually has come up in conversations between myself and a lot of perfusionists when they talk about just the PSO in general, how something similar did or could, or they had a near miss occur with that. Those are the kind of the ways the individual reports are really in-depth the membership that allows really wide access, and then also the AMSEC reports. And we're going to be doing the AMSEC reports every year, and hopefully with input from ICEBP and AMSEC board of directors on what kind of information they'd like to see. We can focus them more down the road about, is it important to have information about the highest number of reports or the reports that were most cause the most damage to or harm to a patient. So that's those are the rabbit avenues for distribution. But we're also looking at things in the future. We're looking at producing some courses, some online courses to talk about a lot of the issues, because I think especially going forward, I'm sure both video and or long form audio is really I hate to say I love textbooks, but I think that they're going to be read less and the format that they take is going to change. Yeah, I love that you brought a few of those topics up here that I'd love to touch on. And one of them is we talk about having standards and guidelines in the profession. And some of those standards don't necessarily have very strong evidence behind them. It's more information that we know as an industry is necessary for safety. But coming from the perspective of a different healthcare professional looking into those standards, there might be a, a lot of pushback on it. And for me, I keep thinking about the information and the data that Orem PSO is collecting and what do we need to bridge a gap where we go from the data that you have to turning it into a true evidence-based guideline in the future that's more in line with how the STS puts out their guidelines for cardiac surgeons. I'm 100% on board and endorse what you just said. I wonder... 
I think that one of the things I'd like to see our report to ANSEC do next year that would be better is to say specifically, and I think we do in this year's report, but I think we'll make it more clear next year. When we have a standard or guideline, we meaning the profession through the ICEBP, have a standard or guideline that's established. Oftentimes, you're right, we don't have a lot that we can reference to say. Maybe it's just a consensus standard, but in the aviation industry, going back to that analogy, when there is a certain language that you are supposed to use for approach to landing, that is because in 1974, this happened to this plane. And in 1981, this happened to this plane. And in 1963, this happened to this plane. And you can't deviate from it because those accidents and those deaths are so public. And sometimes I think we get away from being really strict with ourselves because when things happen, a lot of times we can just say it's heart surgery. The mortality rate is significantly above zero under the best circumstances. It's a little bit of a scapegoat on our part, in the on the part of the profession, and that goes for everyone in cardiac surgery. But I think you're right. We would really like to more closely be able to tie the, the recommendations, both what we put in our report to AMSEC, and I'd love to be able to find a way to connect some of what ICEBP is doing to, you know, not a specific report, but say we have received this number of reports that involve this variable or would support this standard. Well, Mel, I'm afraid it's about that time. We've spent just shy of 60 minutes on pump, and I'd say we've gotten to the heart of the matter for today. Let's start weaning off bypass and continue this story on the next episode of On Pump. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters at gmail.com. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.